Hear NFL legends, players, coaches, and media members from around the country sharing their insights and stories with us year-round. Here on Thursday night, tailgate, 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 tail, 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 tailgate. All right, now back with us is former Major League infielder Kurt Bavacqua. Let me remind you a little bit about Kurt's background. He is from Miami Beach, Florida. Played his college ball at Miami-Dade College. He was originally drafted by the Mets in the 32nd round in 1966 and the Braves in the sixth round of January's uh, 1967 secondary draft. Didn't sign with either of those teams, but he did sign with the Cincinnati Reds who selected him in the 12th round of the secondary draft in June of 1967. Traded to the Cleveland Indians in 1971 and made his major league debut in June of that year. Earned the nickname Dirty Kurt for regularly having the dirtiest uniform on every team he played for. He played in the major leagues from 1971 to 1985 for the Indians, Royals, Pirates, Brewers, Rangers, and Padres. Helped the Padres make it to the World Series in 1984 and had a couple of really big home runs in that series. And we are honored. He is back with us again tonight here on Thursday Night Tailgate. Hey, Kurt, Chris, and Bob, thanks for coming back back. on the show. How are you guys? Boy, Eddie's a tough act to follow. (laughs) Indeed. (laughs) Yeah. Wow. But we're glad it's you that gets to follow him. Kurt, how have you been? Everything is is so good. I, I certainly appreciate you giving me the opportunity to come back on your show. Your show's doing just fabulous. Thank you very much, Kurt. So I, I want to start our time with you tonight, Kurt. Get your thoughts on the Padres. They've had a very busy and very expensive offseason. What do you think about what they've done? Well, I think anybody that's a Padre fan has got to be excited going into the season. You got, uh, you know, not only the addition of Bogarts, but, you know, you got Machado coming off a great year and showing what kind of a leader he is. Um, you've got a guy that stepped up a little bit and has some Kim, uh, which I tell you what, he showed me, uh, that he could be an everyday player. Uh, you know, whether that remains to be the case for the, uh, for the entire year remains to be seen, but, you know, he will start out the season as a second baseman with Jake Cronenworth over at first, um, Bogarts at, at shortstop and uh, and of course Manny Machado at third. Uh, Fernando Tatis is due to be back into the lineup on the 20th of April uh, after he misses the first 20 games of the season. I find it quite interesting that Major League Baseball has a rule that even though a player is suspended, they're able to participate in spring games. Yeah, isn't I, that interesting? I don't ever re- it it really is. I don't I don't ever recall uh, seeing that before. And and when I found out, I was happy, uh, mainly because the Padres have a few guys uh, that are going to play in the WBC, and it's not going to give allow the ch- the fans a chance to see these guys in the spring because they're going to be on teams that I think are going to extend their way into. Uh, the WBC tournament, and I'm talking to the Dominican Republic in particular, and it's going to give them an opportunity to see a real star in Tatis. And boy, there, I think there are people that are leaving a lot on the table when it comes to Tatis's ability, and they're they're not sure how he's going to return, and they think that maybe the cream that he was putting on himself 
um, is going to make a big difference in his power and the kind of player that he was. And I just say nonsense. Uh, Fernando Tatis is going to be the same type of player that not only fans in San Diego saw for the first two years of his career, but also the fans across the, uh, the baseball world. And Kurt, you talk about Tatis and, and Machado. The Padres got a lot of $20 million a year plus players. And those guys, plus Soto, plus Bogars, plus Joe Musgrove, you Darvish is just a little bit shy of that. They're spending a lot of money. It seems like they're sort of putting all their chips in to win a World Series in the next couple of years. Is it sort of World Series championship or bust right now? No, I wouldn't say it's a World Series championship or bust, but I, I can tell you one thing. Uh, and Peter Seidler said it, he goes, I can't take it with me. Uh, <laughs> you know, here's a guy that the, the fans of San Diego should love. I mean, Peter Seidler is, is spending his money and the investors money, the owners of this baseball team's money. And they're really making a huge difference in, uh, the way baseball looks at contracts. I mean, everybody's making a big deal about Machado announcing that he was going to play out his option this year. And everybody's freaking out because they think that that means he's going to leave that folks. That's not, if you're listening and you're a Padre fan or you're a baseball fan, that's not what it means. It means that he doesn't want to think about his, you know what? I actually think his timing sucked. I don't think he should have made an announcement. I don't think Manny Machado, needed to say anything. I would have liked to have seen him just go into spring training, put together a great year. I expect this ball club to not only compete in the National League West, but I really and truly think that this ball club is going to win the National League West this year and unseat the Los Angeles Dodgers with their string of National League West titles. And Kurt, you talk about Machado and playing it out and, you know, he's rumored to want a, you know, a 10 year, $400 million contract. When you look back on your career, can you believe guys are, you know, getting contracts for $400 million based on what you guys were making? <laughs> you know, I remember my first three year deal with Texas and I got a little under that 400 <laughs> number. A little bit. Uh, it was, but it was four hundred thousand, <laughs> and it was a three. It was a three-year contract, and I thought I was stealing money. I mean, I you know I was so elated and so happy uh, signing that contract that year. You know, from guys that are old school, I, I consider myself in that bunch now uh, because of the length of time that's gone by since we played. I, you know, I don't remember when gas was 49 cents a gallon either. And I don't remember when a Corvette was 4,500 bucks, <laughs> but you know what? That's what they were back then. And that's, that's what a gallon of gas cost back then. So, you know, as much as you say, wow, that's, that's a lot. I don't think Manny Machado is looking for 10 years for 400 million. I don't think that puts too much pressure on Manny Machado. If, if, as a matter of fact, the reason that I thought he made a mistake was that if Manny Machado doesn't go out and have the kind of year that he had last year and the San Diego Padres don't do 
as well as people expected, he, it's hard to walk away from a $150 million contract for five years. And, and that's what he'll be walking away from. And for a player to do that takes a lot of guts. He's got to be awful sure of himself. But I think he's looking at this ball club, and he believes in himself so much that he was willing to do that. Bob, questions for Kurt? Yeah, Kurt, it's always great to speak with you. And, you know, having said you're old school, and I put myself in that same boat, I mean, it's, it's become more difficult for me to watch the game because it's becoming more one-dimensional uh, as far as offensive players. You know, I'm just – I have my – your stats in front of me, and I'm looking at the fact that, you know, you had sacrifices. You didn't strike out much. It's That, that seemed to matter to guys back. And I know the game has changed and it's played differently, but when you see guys that are fundamentally not good and, uh, you know, swinging for the fences totally – it's it's like watching to me it's like watching home run derby every night it gets old to me didn't you used to love home run derby <laughs> well when it was... i remember tuning in i remember tuning into that when i was a kid i just couldn't wait to watch that exactly. but yeah the game has changed the game has changed so much i mean they're implementing rules this year to keep the game the same way that they changed it to and when I say that they, I'm talking about Manfred, but you know what? The players association is allowing this stuff. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're, they're doing away with the shift uh, to try to add a little bit more offense. And they're, they're going to, uh, they're going to help a lot of left-handed hitters get a few more base hits and incre- and put their average up from 206 to 209. <laughs> and they're they're going to allow guys to steal a few more bases. They're going to. Uh, I'm anxious to see, and I'm I'm really not looking forward to it because I think at times it's going to make a joke of the game. Uh, but pitchers are going to get caught uh, with that number of times that they can go over the first place or first base, and then if they do it again and they don't pick the runner off, it's a balk. You know, I, I don't like that rule. I don't, I want to speed the game up just like anybody else. But you know what? When I'm a family and I see families walk into the ballpark and I know that they're going to spend at least four or $500 to walk into the ballpark, what the hell's wrong with them spending three and a half or four hours at the ballpark? I just, I, I, you know, I, I loved the Jim Cott games and the Randy Jones games when I was a player because I wanted to get in and out and go out and have fun. <laughs> but you know what? As a fan, I want those guys to play. I want to see extra innings. I don't think the extra inning rule should have got, uh, should have been played, uh, into the 10th inning. I, th- I, sh- I think it should have been maybe put in the 11th or 12th inning because there's a lot of games. I think it's like 60 some percent of games that go into extra innings are ended in, and I'm not talking about with a man on second, are ended in the 10th inning. So why couldn't they just go and uh, and think about, you know, statistics? I mean, that's what they look at uh, with analytics and sabermetrics and everything now. So why couldn't the powers that be, and I'm talking about Manfred and the MLB people in the offices there, say, you know what? Let's just 
let's go into 12th inning for a man on second. That's going to save the pitching staff. That's going to keep a, uh, keep a game within five hours. And we'll keep, we'll keep it out of the game in the postseason. But it's hard to have something in my mind that is part of the game for 162. And then as soon as the postseason rolls around, it's not there anymore. I don't like right. that. Agreed. And, and, and Kirk, correct me if I'm wrong here. Uh, you mentioned the shift. I mean, so basically what they're telling teams and scouts and front offices, basically, if you do your homework and scouting and everything and you play guys where you know they probably would, you're going to be penalized now. We can't do that. So they're rewarding guys who can't go the other way uh, with with not allowing a shift now. Am I missing something here? No, you're not missing anything at all. And it it, it bothers me, but uh, let's face it. You know what? They're, we're starting to see a little bit of a turnaround when it comes to 100% analytics. We're, we're starting to see more people say, and when I say more people, I'm talking about the people in the front office that are a combination of old school and analytics, new analytics, which I think we all agree. New analytics is great. I mean, if I can throw something in a computer and spit out information that I didn't have before I put it in the computer, why not use it? But when I see a player on a tablet, as soon as he makes an out or strikes out in an at-bat, and he goes back to the bench and he starts studying everything, I don't think that's the time to do that. I think the time to do that is when the game's over and before the game the next day. But when it comes to this shift thing, you're still going to see shifts. I tell you what, if I'm a major league manager, I'm bringing in one of my outfielders. If I got a guy hitting, that's just a crazy, like a Muncy. you know, Max Muncy, although he runs a little better than average from average to a little bit better. Uh, I bring in one of the outfielders because Mac Munce, Max Muncy's not going to pound the ball into the left field corner, and I don't have to worry about that. So I can move my outfielders over as long as my infielders are on the right side of second base and their feet are on the dirt. I can move my outfield anywhere I want to. That's where the shift differences are going to be. There's going to Watch what Buck Joe Walter does this year with Chef. I can't wait to watch the Mets play the first few games of the season. And Kurt, we're we're talking about the game now where it's like Bob talked about home run derby or 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 guys are striking out left and right. Do you think even with all these rules changes, can the hitters change? Can they become more line drive hitters, more dink and dunk hitters? And to me, you're gonna do all this stuff with all these rules. Guys are still going to swing for the fence, and the guys are still going to strike out. I don't know that the putting the defense any any other way, any other alignment, all that sort of stuff is going to make a lick of difference because guys are just swinging for the fences, and they swing really hard, and they hope the ball gets in the way. Well, uh, you know, that's going to remain uh, the part of the game that's been in existence for the last seven, eight, nine years. Right. I mean, it's a whole, yeah. I mean, you're talking about a a whole era of ballplayers. You know, there's not, 
one one guy on a major league roster right now, not one that has ever sat in a strike. Yeah. These guys. And so I'm pointing that out. I'm pointing that out because, you know, the last strike is in 1994. Right. You know, that that's almost 30 years ago. Right. Most of these kids weren't even born. They've had not. Right. Not only have they had peace, but these guys, when they were locked out last year, they didn't know what the hell was going on. (laughs) And they, and they still don't when it comes to negotiation, a collective bargaining agreement. I tell you what, I saw something today or it might've been yesterday where Rob Manfred said something along the lines of he's putting a team together to look into the possibilities of a salary cap. Oh, please. All right. Rob, Rob Manfred is starting to negotiate with Tony Clark already for the next collective bargaining agreement. This guy, even though he's a, even though he's a pain in the ass (laughs) and there's a lot of people that don't, don't necessarily think he's doing the best job for the game of baseball. He is a good negotiator and he's kicked Tony Clark's butt uh, for a good period of time now. And everybody in baseball knows it. Uh, You know, Tony Clark and the players gave it a kind of a look at, you know, we kind of won last year. Uh, I don't know if they won as much as they stayed even, an even keel. But with that, I just look at Rob Manfred and the owners putting themselves in a position and negotiate something else because they know that the players will never stand for salary cap. It'll never happen. I hope it does. That's what the game needs. I mean, you know, Kurt, well, I don't know if you remember. You know what? But it, I go ahead. I'm sorry. No, I, just, I was just going to say, you know, I don't know if you remember, but you know, I'm I'm from Pittsburgh. I grew up a huge Pirates fan. That's when I got to know you as a ball player, who you were, and all of that sort of thing. You know, in the in the seventies, and you know, Pirates are never ever going to compete unless they just get lucky. And they catch lightning in the bottle like they did back in, you know, 2013, 14, 15, when they had Garrett Cole and those guys. I mean, they're not going to, you know, they'll they'll compete every once in a blue moon. And without a salary cap and without a, you know, and and I think that along with a cap, they need a floor so that, you know, the Pirates are forced to act that actually have to pay whatever it is, 100 million, 125, whatever they put the floor at. But there's just so many teams that are just not going to be able to compete. It's silly to even have them in the league. All they are is like a 4A team, you know, get, getting ready to, you know, give their, their, their stars get good. They're, they're going to get traded at the, at the, uh, all-star break or at the trading deadline. And, and they're going to start all over again. I mean, I, I just, the game needs something. It can't, I don't think it can continue on this way or it does. It, it needs to purge about a half dozen teams. So the San Diego ball club's probably going to spend about $230 million this year. And the Los Angeles Dodgers are probably, probably right around that number. And so are the, uh, the Mets and, uh, and the Phillies are pretty close. So what if they had a salary cap of 175, 180 million? 
you you're talking about the Pittsburgh Pirates, the Oakland A's, where they are right now, the right. Kansas City Royals, Cincinnati Reds. They're at somewhere between forty and seventy million. Right. Do you actually think they're going to? Do you think if with the salary cap they're going to spend another hundred million dollars? No, that's why if I said those that owners they are gotta, cheap. They need a seal. They need a floor. Right. You got to you got to spend at least X and no more than Y. You can't be just, you know, you can spend 30 million like the pirates are going to spend. Well, you know, I am as much as some of the salaries are crazy. I see how they're structuring these deals now so that the average medium for the particular years that the ball player is going to be under contract um, is less than it normally would because the contract is no, is longer and it helps the clubs with the salary cap numbers. But it, as big as these contracts are, and you know, just like all of us, that we would have loved to have made that kind of money or some something anywhere near it. I am never going to call for somebody that wants to spend more money on another person for whatever kind of job that they do and not, not say to the guy that walks into this restaurant that I just came out of and the guy's a great cook and the, the union for the cooks is going to say, well, we got a salary cap of 150,000 a year. So even though you think this guy's worth 300, you can't pay him that much. I think it's nonsense. So I, I'll never agree on a salary cap. Uh, I don't think, I don't think there's a lot of players that ever will, uh, certainly. And, and there's only a handful. I mean, we're not talking about very many guys here that are worth the kind of money that we're talking about that calls for salary cap to be in the conversation. So I think it's nonsense. I really do. Yeah, that's a tough one for me, Kurt. I mean, I, and I get what you're saying yeah, you know, yeah. about, you know, hey, you should be able to pay whatever you want to pay for the talent that you want to pay for it. And 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 certainly and and, and that's the way it goes, I, I think, in, in the majority of the business world. I think it's tough when you're talking about sports and you want to have competitive teams that there's there's a handful that can compete every year. You know, the Dodgers, the Padres have gotten themselves in there. The Padres weren't always there. Right. And they. They struggled for a long time until new ownership came around. And maybe that's what you need. You've got to be able to, you know, look at into the bank and say, you know, hey, are you going to really spend the money that, to make this team competitive? Or are you just coming in for the revenue sharing and you're going to run it, you know, like a, a corner drugstore? I, I think there's just got to be something for for these teams. Or, you know, the bottom line is, and I love the Pirates and I'm from Pittsburgh and all of that. You got to you got to tell the Pirates and the A's and some of these teams, you know what? It's just you're not you're not competitive. You're, you're winning between 50 and 62 games a year. You know, it's really not fair to your fans. It's time to close up shop because that's I think that's just the reality of the economics of the game. The, the large market teams are going to be there every year. They're going to spend their money. They've got bigger deals with their TV deals. And all of that sort of thing, you know, as, as you can imagine, you know, the, the TV deal in Pittsburgh is nowhere near the TV deal in Chicago, New York, Boston, LA, San Diego, maybe it's just, it's just not. 
Well, I mean, I don't know why uh, San Diego's market is so much bigger than Pittsburgh's uh, when it comes to television revenue. But I think the owners share some TV revenue. But uh, I think that there's nice checks uh, that the owners of each major league team are getting every year that we don't even know about. Oh, for sure. I'm uh, with you there. You know, M- MLBAM uh, is paying the owners a tremendous amount of money every year for their streaming services and uh, their licensing deals and all of that stuff uh, that they have up and down uh, every inch of every marketplace that the players get very little, if not any of. And, uh, you know, the owners are sharing that. Those owners, I'm never going to feel sorry uh, for somebody that's worth uh, a billion and a half dollars and that has a ball or has a ball club that's worth a billion and a half dollars or more uh, owns a major league baseball team and doesn't want to put the profits that he's making from that major league baseball team back into it because that's what these guys are doing, right? They're not spending the profits that they're making. Other teams are. Yep. And those are the teams that you're talking about. Yeah. The teams that draw three mil. You know, San Diego is going to draw three million people this year. There's no, I don't think there's any doubt about it. The Los Angeles Dodgers continually draw three million people. The Mets, they're probably going to draw three. I, I, I'm, I'm really anxious to see what happens in the National League East and the National League West this year. I think it's going to be really exciting. I can't wait to see what Bruce Bochy does with the Texas Rangers uh, over in the American League. Uh, I can't uh, wait to see how the Boston Red Sox are going to stumble and fall again on their face <laughs> with the ownership group that they have. Uh, it's just a damn shame. But the people of Philadelphia should be happy because of that ownership group there. Uh, the people in, uh, in, in New York naturally are, uh, are elated with, uh, with Cohen and the amount of money that he has to spend. I mean, he, Steve Cohen's got stupid money. I mean, let's face it. He, he, he has more money than, uh, than a lot of the owners want to spend. But I tell you what, a lot of these owners, as crazy as it sounds, a guy like Siler won't let a guy like Cohen push him around. And that's where some of these salaries get pumped up. I mean, look what happened to Correa. Correa's deal is kind of an iffy deal. Yeah. I'm wondering what the heck happened in that deal. I think those guys came back and said, you know, this is just too much money. Carlos, there's nothing wrong with Carlos Correa's ankle. I don't know what the hell these guys are talking about. They, if you took an x-ray of a guy's ankle that's been broken, it's probably going to look funky. And the doctor that looks at it says, wait, wait a minute. This guy can't possibly, this guy never watched a baseball game in his life that said Carlos <laughs> Correa's ankle is bad. Carlos Correa has a bad back. That's what's holding him back is his yeah. back. It's not his ankle. And nobody's ever talked about that. Interesting. Carlos Correa used to carry his, carry around, not literally, but lug around with him his chiropractic team that never worked on him in the clubhouse, in the training room of the clubhouse. Really? All the work was done on Carlos Correa in the hotel or an offsite. Wow. Okay. 
Bob, more for Kurt? Yeah, Kurt, I just, um, I've been asked this question a lot, and you're a great guy to talk to this about. And today is uh, Alan Trammell's 65th birthday, a Hall of Famer. Uh, Hall of Fame, just your whole, your whole attitude about the voting now and who gets in. To me, it's the Hall of Very Good now. You know, when I think of Hall of Famers when I was a kid, you know, guys like Aaron Mays, Ruth Garrett, they were no-brainers. If you have to think about it, you probably shouldn't get in. But a guy like Trammell, like today's his birthday, looking at his stats, Kurt, I mean, 285 lifetime, not 300 home runs, not 1,000 RBIs, a very good player, but he got in. Now, you have to put a guy like Whitaker in. If you put him in, I looked at his stats, they're good or even better. Um, you know, when you open that door, Kurt, it just seems like it's just a flood now. You got to let these guys in that were just very good players. Well, that I think you hit the nail on the head because uh, I don't, we're probably going back 15 years now when it all started, 15, 20, maybe, where a couple of guys eked in. And then, yeah. uh, you know, I hate to talk about guys that have been elected into baseball's Hall of Fame because it's such a supreme honor. Because all of the guys that are in the Hall of Fame, I know personally, mm -hmm. and I'll never say anything bad about a ball player that put up the numbers that you threw out with Alan Trammell because I know how hard the game is. But I think you're right. I think you hit the nail on the head. The Baseball Hall of Fame should not be the Hall of Good. or You know, it's got to be great to be able to get inducted into uh, Cooperstown. Uh, you've got to be a great player. And the names that you threw out there, uh, the guys like Nolan Ryan and George Brett and, and those kind of players uh, from our era. And even, uh, boy, I, you know what? I don't, I don't even know a lot of guys that have been elected recently that uh that i was so excited about uh that got in um i but like i said uh these guys deserve it because they got elected but now they've made it a, a circus uh they've made it somewhere to be they put it on uh television for hours and hours and hours because of the mlb network uh they've got to fill that that space and a lot of it's being done with talk about the hall of fame. I mean, they're already talking about it. As soon as it's over, they're talking about next year. Uh, those guys need stuff to talk about. They got a lot of time to fill on that network. Uh, and right. it's, uh, it's, it's not an easy thing. Hey, Kurt, one last one from me. I mean, as far as your own career, when it ended in 85, uh, you were still playing at a decent level in a utility role, valuable to any team that would have you. Uh, was it your decision to end at age 38? Do you think it could have gone longer? Did you want to go longer? Well, I hit um, a little over 340 uh, in spring of 1986. Mm -hmm. And as a matter of fact, my last swing as a professional athlete uh, was a game-winning uh, single to left field off the San Francisco Giants because Roger Craig 
walk the guy to get in front of me. Mm-hmm. And after the game, he walked by me and he said, I walked that guy because I knew you'd win the game and we'd get out of here. <laughs> so he, so he, uh, you know, Roger knew me a little bit. I got to be uh, a pretty damn good pitch hitter the last uh, seven or eight, nine years of my career. I kind of yes. knew how to approach it. Uh, I knew how to wrap my arms around it. Uh, I knew what to expect when I went up there. Uh, and I wasn't griping and moaning about not being in the lineup. You know, I knew my place on the ball club, but I got caught up in the collusion. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I was one of those guys. Um, you know, the, the, uh, the Los Angeles Dodgers and, uh, the Cincinnati Reds were interested in signing me along with, uh, with the San Diego Padres and they were told to back off and it's, it's in, oh yeah, it's in the collusion paper too. How how would that have been? I could have played on Los Angeles Dodgers with my buddy, Tommy. Uh, Wow. (laughs) Wow. He was still the manager. Yeah. I can't imagine you in Dodger blue. <laughs> I can't, I can't either. But in retrospect, uh, I, I tell you what, when I saw it printed in the collusion paperwork, uh, that I was sent by the players association that the Los Angeles Dodgers and the Cincinnati Reds had interest in me, uh, and were, were basically told that, you know, he can't be talked to, uh, because, you know, I was with, I had played out my option with the San Diego Padres. And the one thing that hurt me, and I think hurt a lot of us that year, was the Players Association agreed with the owners that if a free agent didn't sign by November, I think 15th, that they couldn't sign until May 1st. Wow. So in other words, they were going to miss the first month or so of the season. Yeah. Yeah, you, you can't be a utility type player and afford to do that. Bob Boone got away with that in the collusion because the Phillies could afford or the, uh, he might have been with Anaheim at the time, uh, could afford not to have a Bob Boone for a week or a month of the season. And then they they were going to look forward to this kind of guy being able to come in and, and take care of the catching duties. But it it was a rule that the Players Association accepted that hurt certain guys, and I was in that category. Kurt, just a couple more before we let you go, and I got to go back into your career. Talking about the Hall of Fame, you played with Dave Parker. Parker is a guy that I always felt like deserved an opportunity to get into the Hall of Fame. I mean, obviously he's had an opportunity. He's been on the ballot, but I, I, I thought he was, he was a generational player in the late seventies and then into the eighties when he played for the Reds and the A's and the, and the Brewers and some of the other teams that he got an opportunity to play for later in his career. But you saw him early in his career. You saw what he, what he could do. What was, your, what's your opinion of Parker? And is he a guy who deserves more consideration for the hall? Well, anybody that didn't vote for and and hasn't voted for Dave Parker for the Hall of Fame didn't watch him play because Dave Parker, just like you said, was a generational player. Uh, He was one of those guys where when I walked into the clubhouse and saw Dave Parker for the first time, I went, whoa. I go, what in the hell is going on? 
I mean, this guy was a specimen. I mean, he and the greatest, one of the greatest individuals that you'll ever meet. I love Dave Parker. Absolutely love him. As a matter of fact, I called Parkway about two or three months ago, and I told him that I loved him. Because I know that, I don't know, I, I, I hope he's around for another 10 years, but I don't know if he's going to be uh, because of the disease that's affecting him right now. Right. Uh, I mean, I wish him all the best. And I didn't call him saying, hey, Dave, I know you're on your deathbed. I just wanted him to know that there was somebody out there that was a teammate that uh, really appreciated not necessarily his ball playing, but him as a person. And it's not because he went to church every day and it's not because he held meetings before the game and, uh, you know, you know, applauded all guys that were out there on the team, uh, and, and captain the ball club. It was just because of the kind of person that he is and was when he was a teammate. Uh, and you know what? Willie Stargell falls in that category also. Uh, people ask me my favorite teammates. And boy, I love Bruce Bochy. He was one of my favorite teammates. I love Richie Zisk when I was with the Pirates. But my two favorite teammates were Willie Stargell and Dave Parker. Two of my favorites. Pops was my hero growing up. Boy, he was what a great guy. Kurt, one more before we let you go and, and uh, sticking with the Pirates. You played for Danny Murtaugh. He was the manager in Pittsburgh when, when you went there the, for your first go-round. Chuck yes. Tanner there, your second time as, as a Pirate. Talk about playing for those two guys. Well, I mean, I was really excited about going, going over to Pittsburgh. Uh, you know, I had come from the American League uh, and going back to the National League. You know, at that time, there was a difference between the American League and the National League. Not only was there a strike zone difference, but there was a difference on how the players in the National League took the field. You know, they were proud to be National Leaguers. And it was fun going back to Pittsburgh. Unfortunately for me, uh, it just didn't work out both times that I was in Pittsburgh. Certainly, uh, the second time I went there with Chuck Tanner, uh, Chuck Tanner was not an extra man's manager. Uh, he was a star manager. Chuck Tanner could manage stars. He didn't have to take care of the rest of the 20 guys on the roster and make them feel wanted, make them feel like they were a part of the team. Unfortunately, that's my feelings about Chuck Tanner. Great guy, just not a good leader as far as I was concerned. What about Murtaugh? Danny Murtaugh was just a, he was just a, a dirt dog. He was an old school kind of manager. I mean, the kind, you know, when you think about old school managers, you, you know, you think about Fred Hutchinson and Dave Bristol and Sparky Anderson when he first started with the Reds. Uh, you know, got, got Casey Stangle. I mean, you know, these guys are old school kind of managers, that was Danny Murtaugh. And, 
you know, the first time I took the field in Pittsburgh, you know, he, he let everybody on the field know that, hey, guys, this club's about swinging at lumber. You pitchers shag, let the hitters do their thing. That was Dave Murtaugh's <laughs> idea about a baseball team. He just, he let the pitchers go out. If they could go out and, uh, and hold the opposition to three, four, five runs, he was good because he knew the Pirates were going to score. Kurt, before we let you go, remind our listeners what you're doing now and how they can stay up to date with you and follow you, whether it's online or it's on social media. Well, I appreciate that. You know, my, as a matter of fact, uh, I've got Ellen Adair coming up. If you don't know who she is, you got to listen to my podcast. Uh, look for it on YouTube, uh, Dirty Kurt's Dugout. And uh, Ellen Adair is an actress. And she's going to be on my podcast for the season opener on Thursday. Uh, I don't know when it'll drop into YouTube and the rest of the podcast stations, but uh, you're going to be surprised as to the reason I have this gal on my show this week. Wow. Okay. Look forward to that. Kurt, it is so much fun every time you're a part of the show. We, we love getting to talk baseball with you and love hearing your stories and getting your insights for what's going on around the game. Now we hope we're blessed enough to be able to catch up with you later in the season. Well, absolutely. Anytime you would like it, let's, uh, let's do it. We can follow up on the national league East and, uh, and the national league West and throw in the rest of baseball. Cause I know we, uh, we kind of highlighted those two divisions. Yeah. Kurt, take care. All the best to you and your family. We look forward to catching up with you again fun, soon. Kurt. I appreciate it. Thank you, guys. We'll talk to you soon. Good night. See you, Kurt. That is Kurt Bavakwa. And, and Bob, you know, when I think about him and, and what he's done over the course of his career, obviously played for a lot of different teams, played in the league for a long time. That The dirty Kurt piece, and again, don't, don't confuse with him being a dirty player, Kurt was the guy that was going to slide and get his uniform dirty. And he did so every day that he played. And that's what I loved about him. Not, not, you know, for, for the majority of his career, he was a utility guy, but he got his uniform dirty all the time later in his career. And he talked about this. He became one of the best pinch hitters in the game because he was able to get locked in and certainly did a heck of a job for the Padres in that 84 World Series. I was rooting hard for those guys. I wish they had won. But um, just a, a wonderful ball player and an old school guy. And that means a lot to you and me. Yeah, Chris, again, there was a reason why he stuck around 15 years. Uh, the whole dirty Kurt, you're right. It's because of the way he approached the game, showed up every day, fundamentally sound, uh, no nonsense, had a lot of fun playing baseball, but and very versatile, Chris. I mean, a guy that could play three or four positions, he knew that between you know, moving around the diamond and pinch hitting and doing it consistently was going to keep him around. And it did. I mean, he almost played till he was 40 years old, which is amazing. Uh, but he has as many stories as any guy we've ever talked to. So uh, we'll always, uh, we'll never be, have a shortage of stories with him. And he's always a true joy when he comes on. Yeah, he is. All right. When Bob and I come back, we'll be turning on our Thursday night tailgate spotlight on the positive one more time this season. We'll do that right on the other side of this real quick station break.